Lisa, thank you for your prayer. Um, it has been a difficult week. And I, I just want to say that it is easy for us to grow forlorn or distressed or to give up. And as we've been talking over these last few weeks about what it means to be a witness, we need to ask what it means to reflect Jesus in our violent world. First, we affirm that God is in control. And we do that, we affirm it by praying and by not giving up hope. As followers of the Prince of Peace, we pray for peace. As followers of the Great Physician, we pray for healing. We also ask God to give us wisdom as to how we might live in such a way that we counteract the violent culture of which we are all a part. For some of us, that may mean not consuming the violent movies or violent games that are so prevalent and numb our senses. For others, it may mean investing in others, especially those who live in areas much more violent than our own, as a way of demonstrating that perfect love drives out fear. For others, it may mean contacting a legislator and asking if there is not a way for us to diminish the violence that is literally killing our citizens, if not our very soul. Whatever it may be for you, I pray that we as followers of Jesus will lead the way and demonstrate God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That we might then echo Isaiah's words, that their swords are beaten into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. The nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. God, as we gather this morning, We do know, as Lisa has already prayed, that each generation faces its own struggles. We pray that you would give us the strength to be your witness, to be a people of peace, no matter what it might cost us, for your glory as the Prince of Peace. Amen and amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, we are continuing our look now at the book of Acts. We are skipping forward here. We are at chapter 4 now, verse 32, and we're going to look through the 11th verse of the 5th chapter. And we remember, as I just said, that one of the questions we are asking is, what does it mean for us to reflect Jesus in our world? And So with that, let us read these words from Luke. Luke says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the post proceeds of what he was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning asking again for you to open up our hearts and our ears. Some passages of Scripture are easy to understand and easy to grasp and easy to embrace. Others perhaps cause us more concern. So I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Now, I know I just got done reading this passage, but there's an experiment I would love for us to do. We're not going to really have time to do it, but, but I want us to think about it by me rereading just a few of these verses, all right? Between 32 and 35, I think. Here it is. It says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, if I were to ask you, and we don't have time, but if I were to ask you to get into small groups, A, many of you would really be upset about that, and B, I would ask you the question this, what comes to mind. When, when you see this passage, talk about that. What stands out to you? 
right? And I've done this before, and, and it shouldn't surprise you, right? I mean, this passage is a great passage for cultivating a lot of passionate conversation, right? People talk about, they wonder, well, you know, man, how could they do that? That's, I mean, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty awe-inducing, right? How do you do that? Others say, well, did that really happen? Or is Luke kind of exaggerating a little bit with the fact that, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, maybe, maybe there wasn't nobody who was, or maybe there wasn't, you know, maybe there were still people who were in need, or, 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 or did they really just sell all their stuff? Did they hold everything in common? Is that even possible with an economy like our own? What would that look like if we really do that? If you kind of ram that, you know, if you, if you played out all the ramifications and all the story, I mean, I'm not really sure exactly how that would happen. Is that really something that we're supposed to do? And on and on the conversation would go. And it's a great conversation. I mean, again, this is a great passage for, for having people, for catalyzing passion and conversation, right? But what's fascinating to me is that I would say about 99 times out of 100 that you have this conversation, very few people ever bring up verse 33. That sits really right smack dab in the middle there. It says this, With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You just don't get it yet. Isn't it? Isn't it somewhat fascinating that we are in awe and that what provokes all of our conversation is how they were spending their money and how they were selling that stuff and all of that? That seems amazing. Whoa, how is this possible? But few people talk about the fact that what they're talking about, what they are being a witness to, is the fact that someone who was once dead is now raised up. All right, look. Let's say you're at a lunch with a friend, right? And you're having a salad because you eat salads because we're all healthy, right? And so there you are, and you're eating a salad, right? And your friend just got back from a town, you know, far away. And they came back, and they said, oh, this was amazing. You know, we were there, and, 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 and it was weird. In this town, like everybody, you know, they, they all held everything in common, and they were giving generously. It was bizarre. I mean, they were just, you know, if, if people didn't have anything, they'd sell something and then give it to them. I mean, it was incredible. And you'd sit there, and what would you do? You'd say, that's amazing. And you'd keep kind of munching on your salad, and you'd say, wow, that's really cool. And then if that person went on and said to you, and you know what else, apparently there was somebody and he was dead and he was buried for three days and three days later, all of a sudden, the guy was up and walking around again. You would spit that salad out and you would say, are you kidding me? What? You would think that your friend had lost it. But the thing that you would be talking about, I assure you, when you left that lunch and for the rest of that lunch would be this, would not be about, oh, well, isn't it interesting that people were selling and giving so generously? No, no, no. You would be talking about the fact that someone had been dead and is now alive. That, I can assure you, would be the thing that you could not stop talking about, not how they were spending their money. As I was thinking about it this week, it became crystal clear that we have either grown too uncomfortable with the way that the early church used their money, that we have to talk about it because it just makes us uncomfortable and we need to settle our souls, or we have grown too comfortable with our claim that he who was dead is now alive. 
Let me say it again. We have either grown too uncomfortable with the way the early church was so generous and spent their money, or we have grown far too comfortable with the fact that we as Christians believe that someone who was dead for three days is now alive. And someone else in here is also alive. Thank you. I know this may sound strange for a pastor to say, but i got to be honest with you. I think that we as followers of Jesus need to be a bit more in awe of the resurrection. We need to struggle with this claim a little bit more than we do. I think perhaps we just kind of accept it in a fuzzy way and say, that's, that's fine. But I think that what happens is that we have failed to see that a part of the reason why we struggle so much with living radically as the early church did is simply because of this. It's not because we don't know the call of God. It's not because maybe we're not even trying. It is because we have not taken seriously enough this radical claim that Jesus is now alive. And I think there is a direct correlation between how much you believe in the radical claim that Jesus is alive and how easily or uneasily you are able to actually live a radical life. There is a direct correlation between whether or not you think it's crazy that Jesus, that you're a follower of someone who you say is alive right now after having been dead and you being able to live this kind of crazy radical life. And I would suggest that the only way to ever live this radical life is when you can really claim this radical claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead. See, radical generosity never begins by getting out your checkbook. It always begins by understanding and believing in the radical claim that Jesus is Lord of all and has been raised from the dead. And it bears our repeating, because we say it all the time, but we forget it, that our ethics, how we live, is always born out of what we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Right? Let me say that again. Here in verse 33, towards the end of that passage, or the end of that part of the verse, it also goes on to say, and great grace was upon them all. Oh, what does that remind us of? In other words, that the only way that you can live this radical way is if you have experienced the grace that comes from understanding and believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead, right? It's the only way, because if you try to do it the other way, you're going to be in trouble. The only way for us to live like this and to live like that freely and with joy, to live radically, whatever that might look like, is for you to really understand this radical claim over here, right? It's always free to live like this. Well, remember, we'll get to it in just a moment, the next part of the passage where Peter says, was this land not yours? Weren't you free to keep it? Weren't you free to keep all of the money? 
right? Radical generosity or radical living of any sort is never done out of obligation. It is only done when you understand and experience grace, and then you can begin to live freely like that. If you, hear me now, if you try to live radically, generously, whatever else it is, without experiencing and believing the radical claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead, I want you to know it will kill Which brings us to the less than happy-go-lucky next part of our passage. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you were the initial audience for this letter, if you were Mr. Theophilus himself, and if you had grown a little bit tired, uh, you know, if you kind of reading about all the good things here, right? All the good things that have been happening in the church, how, 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 how the Holy Spirit had come down, how uh, the lame were beginning to walk, how it was that people by the thousands were beginning to follow Jesus. If you were beginning to get a little bit tired with all of that, about how the people are living generously, Right? All you have to do is get to the fifth chapter, and all of a sudden, you wake up. Right? The first four chapters, these are always the chapters that I would say skeptics of Christianity, and even Christians themselves, who say, well, you know what, um, I love Jesus, I, don't, I just don't love the church, you know, or, or if only, you know, we could go back to Acts, that's what we want. I always want to say, well, did you actually finish reading Acts, right? Because all you got to do, it's not that far, people, all you got to do is get to the fifth chapter, and all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, that looks a little bit more like what I understand the church, right? Here we go, we have Ananias and Sapphira. Right after Barnabas has given up his property and he's laid it all down, then all of a sudden you have Ananias and Sapphira. And they decide to also sell their property. And they're going to give those proceeds to the poor like everyone else has been doing, except for this small little fact, which is that, of course, they decide to hold it back. And not only do they decide to hold back, because apparently that would have been fine, because if you live freely, this is not about making sure that you do everything that everyone else is doing, except for the fact that they decide to lie about it. For whatever reason, social influence, for pressure, or whatever reason, they decide to lie about it. And as soon as they do that, as soon as Ananias does that, boom, all of a sudden he's dead. He's carted off and buried outside of town. Sapphira comes in, right? Peter tries to give her a chance. You know, this is the number that we've been hearing. Is this the correct number? Sapphira says, well, you know, of course it's the correct number. Boom! Sapphira hits the ground and people come in and cart her off. It seems, quite frankly, if we can be honest, it seems a little bit harsh, does it not? And, and I can remember hearing this story as a child, and I'm telling you, for at least a week, I would not lie. I mean, this will scare you into being good for a little bit at least. It seems remarkably harsh in so many ways. It's hard to get our, to wrap our head around. It's one of those passages that we'd rather skip from four to six. But I have to tell you that the, the longer I live, the more I experience, the more I realize that in many ways, this story rings true. What I mean by that is the fact that what I have discovered, and my guess is I am not alone in this, 
is that secrets and lies and deceit, dishonesty, that all of those things ultimately bring death. Many of you probably played intramural sports when you were in college. I did as well. It was, uh, it was great fun. And I, I'll admit, I can be a pretty passionate person uh, when it comes to sports, right? It may have happened in the last couple of years even that uh, playing in a particular basketball league that there is a particular pastor who might have gotten a technical or two because he played with such passion. Now, rest assured, it was always the other person's fault first. But I love sports. But I can remember my freshman year, there was a particular gentleman uh, with whom I was playing uh, against, and this guy was a complete and utter jerk. I could not, even I could not believe his antics. I could not believe what he was saying. I could not believe what he was doing. His, his name was Chris. I know his last name, but I don't want to besmirch him here in front of everybody. But I'll tell you if you want when you're leaving. He, he, I was really, I was, somewhat, I was somewhat dumbstruck by his actions on that day. I think it was flag football that we were playing. And now that's fine, I suppose, except for the fact that the next night I decided that I was going to go to a chapel service. And so I went to the chapel service, and sure enough, there on the docket, set up, ready to preach, was the aforementioned Chris. And you should have heard this guy. I mean, he was going on and on, speaking so eloquently and with such passion and, and such conviction. In fact, you know, I was hard-pressed to think that if he, you could easily, it seems, at least in his mind, add a T to the end of his name and not skip a beat. He seemed to have this whole Christian thing down pat. It was, he, he, was, he, he was more than happy to let you know that he had really figured this whole Jesus thing out. And as I listened to him, and I juxtaposed that with the jerk that I had played with the night before, I could not believe that it was the same person. And truth be told, Every time a word came out of his mouth, it dropped straight to the ground, in my mind at least, and little people came over, picked the word up, and went to the edge of town and buried it, word by word. Every single word that he said was absolutely dead to me. Now, my guess is that most of us have some kind of experience of somebody who talks in one way. Let's say they act as if they've got it all together, as if they've got it all figured out, as if everything is perfect, whether it's with their faith or with their family or anything else. And yet you know, because you have experienced it, that they are not actually living like that. You know how that brings death. And even though that was more than a decade before I became a pastor and more than eight years or so before I even wanted to become a pastor, I can tell you that the lesson I learned that night continued to be a part of my ministry throughout. This is why 
as much as I can do in a healthy way, I always try to tell you my own struggles. Right? I try to let you know that I have a propensity for driving somewhat aggressively. Just a little bit at times. That I have a propensity towards being impatient, especially with my children. That I wrestle at times with genuinely being generous, even as I talk about it, how difficult it oftentimes is for me. That I struggle with forgiving as much as I should. And I know that there are times, because I hear it, when there are those in our midst who wish that I would not really talk about those things quite as much. Not my own personal struggles. And I get it. I mean, if I'm supposed to be one of the spiritual leaders, you want to follow somebody who you want to kind of try to look up to a little bit. And I get that. I really do. I want you to know, I wish I could be that person more often than, than, than I am. But I also want you to know something else, which is that I don't want to die. And what I know is the pastors that I have seen, other Christians as well, but especially the pastors that I have seen, who stand up front and who seem to have it all together, I know that inside they are dying. I love what one commentator says about Ananias and Sapphira. He says, the dropping dead part of it was simply making real and outwardly evident their cancerous inner spiritual condition. Our deceit, our lies, our our inability oftentimes to be transcended, it can kill us and it can kill a community, a church community. We know this. It's very similar to what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. How can we be witnesses? How can we reflect Jesus in our area where we live right now? In places where it's hard oftentimes to be honest and to be transparent. Just on Monday, just several days ago now, I, I, was, uh, I saw this, uh, this blog, and, 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 and it's actually done. I don't have the name. I apologize. I can get it for you later if you want. But it's done by a church planter uh, in Fishers, Indiana, not that far away. And he talks about what it's like to do mission in an affluent suburb. And what he says, and honestly, I kind of feel like he's maybe been cheating off of my sermons a little bit. But what he says is he says that we have to create a space, a safe spiritual space for people. And he had five kind of little things that this group of people, this community can do. Here's one of them. The first one is this, a place where shame is dethroned through regular confession and proclamation of good news. We talked about this about three weeks ago. You may remember the, the confession that we did and then, and then coming forward and kind of being assured that you have been forgiven. Right? He goes on to say, a place where uh, the worst thing about me can be brought into light in community because the grace and truth of Jesus Christ is trusted and celebrated. Right? This leads, it seems to me, the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. If you believe that, then it seems to me you can be radically honest about who you are and your struggles. Right? The third thing that he says is a place where people can share pain without others dismissing, denying, or fixing them. 
The fourth one, he says, is a place where we learn how to be present to others' pain. Suffering solidarity with each other. Remember last week we talked about the importance of physically being with others, right? You can suffer in solidarity with each other when you are with them. And then finally, he goes on to say, a place where hope and healing are held together with despair and pain. In other words, we need to be a place where we celebrate and where we are excited about what Jesus has done and where we can be honest. And there's no foolproof way for us to do this because there's always going to be pressure internally and externally in our area. There will always be the pressure to fit in, to act like it's all great, to do all of those things. We've talked about that, and I don't want to be a record uh, record broken. Hey, I'm told you, I'm tired. It's been a long weekend. I don't want to be a broken record here. But I want you to know That one of the places where we do that are in home groups. Why? Because they are places where you can slowly begin to get to know people intimately, right? It's not like the first night that you show up at a home group, you just start kind of spilling everything, right? That might be a little bit odd. But after a while, as you get to know them, you're able to do that. Or or if you don't like groups, maybe it's it's one-to-one where you can just get to know people, but it happens in relationship. The more that you get to know people, right? It happens again. I know we say this, but in great banquet. Why? There's no secret sauce. It's because it offers an opportunity to create space for people to be honest. Why was Gary Ball crying with all those men as he was saying in Brazil? I don't know, but I have a feeling it was because of the fact that they were finally able to be honest, right? That they were able to release some of that pent-up energy, right? It kills you to try to hold things back. We do it in our worship, right? We try to create spaces in our worship, as we already said, to be able to confess and to be honest. We have to continue to do that. But I I also thought later in the week that, you know, we usually, when we talk about being honest, it's about, you know, not not, not kind of hiding things that, that we don't want others to see. But there's also something critical about being honest to others that we don't always do about the things that we love about them. What an idea. 1 Thessalonians actually talks about that. One fifteen, it tells us to tell others, to encourage others. Last, uh, a, while, a little while back now, I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to my wife, Megan. And as I wrote the letter, right, I wanted her to know the things that I love about her, the things that I appreciate about her, right, the things that I care about her about, right? So as I wrote the letter, right, now, I, I mean, as I wrote it, of course, you know, the, 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 the tears started coming down. And as I thought about all the great things about about her. And as I was doing that, here's a thought that came to my head. What is wrong with me? Why is it so dadgum hard for me to do this all the time? What is it about me? Is it pride? What is it? What is it that keeps us more often than not until we're absolutely intentional about it or until someone asks us to, to tell somebody, a family or a friend, the thing we love about them, why, they, why we like being with them. Think about what difference that makes in someone's life when we create space to write down or to tell someone, I just want you to know these are the things that I love about you. 
Here's the thing. We make being a witness all too complicated. We think, well, this is pretty hard. We don't know how, how are we going to be a witness? How are we going to grow the church? How are we going to do that? Okay, we always, when it comes to being a witness or growing the church, we always go to Sunday morning worship. Here's what needs to happen. Different music. Let's do it. Better preaching. Oh, no, I was waiting for you to say amen to that. I wasn't a, I wasn't a setup. Right? Better children. Better this. Better that. And all those things are fine. Except for the fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when it comes to those kinds of questions, you know what it most oftentimes leads out? You! Right? And Jesus, let's remember, what did Jesus say? Who are to be my witnesses? Oh, yeah, everyone. I'm fine with us changing worship and, and, and doing other things, and we'll always work at that. But here's the thing. If we do that, then we let you off the hook, and it's not actually that hard. How can we be witnesses? I'll tell you, just like the early church, you create space. We create space, right? We create space to be honest, right? We create space to be able to say, I don't have this all together. We're a community where people can come in and they can see that we are a people, or as we're out in the neighborhoods, can see we are a people who are honest, or perhaps we are the people who are always encouraging others, who are always, who aren't afraid, as if if I say something good about you, it must mean that you're better than me. No, no, no. Who are always more than happy to tell you, here's the thing that you, this is the, this is the reason why I love you. This is the thing I love so much about you. You think about a community like that or a community that is radically generous. Think about if we did just those three things, what kind of witness might we be in our world? But it begins, it begins right here. And the more that we can be, take hold the radical claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the more that we freely, not out of obligation, not because, well, pastor said we need to do this. Don't do it then. It'll kill you. But because of the fact that we have experienced that grace, then we begin to live freely and radically. And when we do that, this is what Will Williman says, that when we do that, here's what he says. He says, the most eloquent testimony, that was the right one, to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people, i.e. you, whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. And that decisive thing that we we believe is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And when we believe that and we begin to live like that, we point people to the claim that Jesus has been raised. It goes back and forth, back and forth. Sisters and brothers in Christ, it is an easy message today. Do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? then might we experience the freedom of living in that reality that others may also experience the Savior who died and was raised for them. Dear God, 
You are an amazing God. One whom we believe has been raised from the dead. Help us. Help us to be witnesses in our community by the way in which we are not afraid. Not afraid to give generously. Not afraid to be radically honest and transparent about our struggles, about the way that we care about others. That in so doing, we might point to the risen Savior. Hallelujah. Amen.